Uh, good evening. So, that's actually one of my favorite songs. Um, have it on my Spotify playlist. So, I appreciate the opportunity to speak up here. As Pastor Wally said, it is my first time doing a non-devotion. Um, so, as he said, I am a college student at Pensacola Christian College. I am going for youth ministry. And sometime around April, they, um, they handed out a syllabus for a summer internship program. And I had no idea that I had to do an internship. And I was trying to you know, go through my head and, and try to figure out, like, what can I do? What can I do? I was thinking about doing Kobiak again, but Madison already had an internship in Milford planned out. So I wanted to stay local. So I ended up texting Josh Miller and asking him if I can do some youth internship. And he said that should work, but let me figure it out and I'll get back to you. And about a week or two later, he texted me and said that, you know, we can do that. Just, you know, just tell me some of the requirements that he has to do on his side, which Pensacola gave us like half a paragraph on, you know, what the requirements is. It just said I had to do something, basically. And then um, after that was all figured out, he told me to email Pastor Wally about the uh, summer speaking schedule. And my heart kind of dropped because I have never spoken in front of, you know, any more than about 20 to 30 people and then, you know, a bunch of teenagers at Kobiak who weren't really listening. So it was kind of terrifying, and I got put on the list and been kind of excitingly dreading this day. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 tonight. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context on the book of Romans. Um, the Apostle Paul, obviously, was the writer of the book of Romans. And uh, he wrote this epistle, uh, epistle to the Church of Rome. And um, he was planning on visiting the Church of Rome at some point, but he was writing a letter to them beforehand. And as a kid, I always kind of picture this was a, this was a uh, letter to non-believers or new believers, just because the Romans wrote within it. And then once I got in the youth group, I actually had to you know, read through the Bible for the all-star program. I kind of figured out that this actually applies to Christians too. And um, with that in mind, we're going to start in verse 5. Uh, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And we'll pause there for now. We'll uh, go on a little bit later. My mouth is already dry, so... So this passage talks about car being carnally minded or spiritually minded. And I want to look at carnally minded uh, for the first half. So what does it mean to be carnally minded? So I have a couple of aspects that was pointed out here. But anytime that you're reading the Bible, if you really want to get a deeper understanding, you should you know, have a good dictionary. I like to use Webster's 1828. I consider that kind of my best friend when it comes to Bible reading. And when you look up carnal-minded in Webster's 1828, it says, pertaining to flesh, fleshly, sensual, opposed to spiritual, as carnal pleasure. So when you're being carnally-minded, you don't, you don't care what God has to say. You care about what your natural desires are. You care about what you feel like doing. What will benefit Joshua Stevens? What would benefit Joe Clawett or Alex Featherland? What would benefit you? It doesn't matter what God wants you to do. You care about what you want to do. So when you're carnally-minded, what God says, what the Bible says, does not matter. It does not matter in your own eyes even though it's a really dumb way of living. So to be carnally minded is to do stuff according to your fleshly desires. So in verse 6 has the first aspect I want to point out. It says, for to be carnally minded is death, 
death in the Bible is always referring to separation from God. It's not referring to being buried six feet under. It's always referring to separation from God. But unlike in Romans 6.23, it's, it's not talking about eternal separation from God. It's talking about just separation. When you're carnally minded, you're building separation from God. The more and more you're carnally minded, the more separated you are from God. <clears throat> so anyone who is carnally minded is constantly creating separation from God in their lives. And then verse 7, it says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. And enmity, which I didn't really know what that word meant until um, coming into the youth group, but it's just a stronger form of the word enemy. You have enemy and then you have enmity. So when you're at enmity with someone, it's a stronger form of just you know, a, a normal enemy. <clears throat> and another thing that I like to do when reading the Bible and I'm really trying to get a deeper insight, I like to look up some cross-references and I like to look up uh, when a word has been used in other portions of the Bible. So I got on the Bible app and you can just search for a word and I'll give you all the instances where that word or phrase was used. So I looked up enmity and it actually first appears all the way in Genesis. It appears in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, you guys don't have to turn there, but uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, most of you probably would know, but that is when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And the first time that it was used was when God was directly talking to Satan. And Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God had punishments for four different aspects, or four different character groups. You had, he punished the devil, he punished women, he punished men, and then he punished humankind. And this verse, he is punishing Satan right here. He is telling them that I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And woman's seed started with Seth, and it came all the way down to Jesus Christ. And uh, the devil's seed will eventually beget the Antichrist. And throughout all of time, Satan is our biggest enemy. He has enmity against women. He has en enmity against humankind. And our carnal mind, or our fleshly, or of the world, is at enmity with God. But when you actually read verse, or verse number 7, it's more than just at enmity with God. Or it more than is enmity. Or Sorry, let me, I lost my place for a second. Yeah, it, it's, not saying it is, it's not saying it's at enmity with God. It's saying it is enmity with God, as, as if against God, as if it is the definition of enmity. So you're not just at enmity. You are enmity with God when you're at a carnal mind. And when you go further in verse 7, it says, For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So like I said earlier, when you're living carnally, when you have a carnal mind, you don't care what God has to say. You're not subject to his law because, quite frankly, you don't care. If God tells you to do something, if you don't feel like doing it, you just don't do it. And, quite frankly, if you're at a carnal mind, you might not even be reading your Bible, so you might not even know what God is telling you to do, and you might not even know what you're doing is wrong. You're being ignorant toward, towards that. So when you're living in the flesh, you're not living in God. And I kind of I like... I kind of view chapter, or verse 8 as kind of like a clarification for what uh, 6 and 7 was. Because all it says is, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's kind of, it's kind of like a summary. All of these things that we just mentioned, with, with all three of those, you're not going to please God. When you're living in the flesh, you cannot please God. You cannot do enough works in your flesh thinking that God's going to be happy with you. So with what it says, I kind of, kind of pictured it as if I 
as if I'm treating Madison in this way, because I figured every Wednesday night preacher has to kind of pick on their wife a little bit. I don't have a wife, but I still have a fiance, so I think I have to follow the unspoken rule. So if I were to treat Madison the same way that this is saying, if I am trying to constantly create separation against Madison, I have planned it out in a way where she's living in Michigan, I'm living in Ohio, and we have a five-hour separation, and it's amazing. That's what I love, because I do not care <laughs> about my relationship for whatever reason. Number, number two, it has being at enmity. If I want to constantly be at strife with Madison, and I you know, don't care what she has to say, I always try to displease her, always try to make her upset, she's not going to be pretty pleased with me. And if I am always not subject to whatever she asks me to do, if I'm always purposely doing the opposite of what she wants me to do, and there is no way that I can please Madison. I'm creating separation, I'm at enmity with her, and I do not care what she says. If I can't please Madison that way, how can I please God that way? If I'm creating separation with God, if I'm at enmity against God, and I'm not subject under the law of God, how can I please God? So, of course, uh, are in the, or so then that are in the flesh cannot please God. And like I said earlier, the book of Romans was written to the church of Rome. It's not written to, you know, a bunch of non-believers, because if that was written to a bunch of non-believers, they probably wouldn't have read it, because why would they? And just like, you know, our church and any other church, there are a handful of people who are not saved here and there. pastor says all the time, you can go to church your entire life, you can go to a Baptist church your entire life and still not be a Christian. But this was still written to Christians. This passage was directed towards believers. And when I think of even biblical Christian examples in the Bible, some that could be at a carnal mind of times, I think of the Apostle Peter. You guys can turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we'll be in verse 21. Um, this is a portion where Christ is foretelling his death and resurrection to all of his disciples. And starting verse 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to shew unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this, is, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So the Apostle Peter, one of the greatest men to ever live on this earth, he was an apostle of you know, Jesus Christ for three and a half years directly with Jesus Christ, and then he served Christ for the rest of his life until he died. But in this moment, one thing that Peter is also famous for is he is famous for speaking first and then thinking, which is not how we should live our life. But right here, he after Jesus basically tells them, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to put me through a really harsh, twisted court, and then they're going to kill me, but I'm going to raise from the dead. And Peter takes him aside. It's like, hey, Jesus, what you just said to us, I know you know everything, you're all knowing, you're the son of God, but that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm, I'm Peter. That, no, that's not going to happen to you. And he was, Peter was not thinking about the greater good of him, Jesus Christ actually dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus came to this earth to forgive us and give us a way to get to heaven. He's the only way that we can get to heaven. And this was the only way by bloodshed that that could be, or that could happen. So, justly, 
Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In other words, you're not thinking spiritual, you're thinking carnally. You're thinking of what, you're, what you want, not what God wants. And if Peter can be carnal-minded carnal at times, then I can definitely be carnally-minded at times. I think we all can. So we have a few aspects that the verse, uh, or the verse has said about being carnally-minded. But no one wakes up in the morning and you know, they're taking their shower and they're just like, you know what, I am going to live for myself today. I am not going to read my Bible. I am going to disregard everything that God wants me to do. And I'm going to have a great day. That's exactly how I'm going to live. So how can you be carnally minded? What does it mean to actually act carnally minded? Well, maybe you're always edifying yourself, which would root from pride. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but whenever you talk to someone, they just absolutely adore talking about themselves. Whether you ask them a question, they answer far more into the, the question than you actually wanted. You just kind of ask them, how, how was your day going? You just wanted good. You don't actually care what their day was like. Or maybe they try to weasel their way into, you know, relating to something that you said just so they can talk about how great they are. Or maybe you're always aiming for more. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful, wanting to be able to provide. But Pastor kind of gave an illustration on Sunday that I stole and put in my sermon. And um, he, he said something on lines about you have people who are never content with what they have. They're always looking for the next shiny thing. And then once they have it, and doesn't shine anymore. They're looking for the next shiny thing, then the next one, and the next one. They're never satisfied. They're living for what they want. They have to be greedy. They always need the next best, best thing. <clears throat> or maybe you're not forgiving towards others. And this one should be pretty obvious. I mean, Jesus Christ literally came to forgive our sins. I mean, I would say God's grace is a great definition for forgiveness. Jesus commanded us many times to not only just forgive our friends and family, but also our enemies, people we people that don't like us. And some of us can't even forgive our friends. Some of us were wronged five or six years ago, very minorly by one of our friends, and we will not let that go. We're still bitter towards them for no reason. And the last thing I, I wrote down was uh, seeking pleasures without any boundaries. I would say a big goal of the world, someone who, has n or someone who does not have Christ in their life at all, their main goal is happiness. And like I said, or said about being able to provide, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. But if your main goal at any cost is happiness and you know, doing whatever makes you happy, that's being carnally minded, especially without any boundaries. So if you guys want to go back to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read one more verse there. and be in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye live through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And mortify means to subdue, to humble, or to restrain. So, through the Spirit, if you restrain the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And if you guys can just flip one page over to Romans chapter 6. Hopefully it should take about a second for you guys. It's literally just one page. In Romans 6, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we, we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we, that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And we'll stop right there. We should, as Christians, as born-again Christians, we should be living as if we're dead to sin. The chapter starts off by talking about God's grace and basically, a, I, I presume a rhetorical question, but shall we continue in sin? Shall we keep sinning and keep sinning just so God's grace can be greater and greater, so God can keep forgiving us? And the next verse immediately answers that, saying, God forbid, or most definitely not, certainly not. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, when I looked it up in the dictionary, I didn't actually get a definition because I, I guess it wasn't too common of a phrase. But we can break it down a little bit. What does it mean to be dead? When you're dead, you're no longer able to do anything. I mean, have you ever seen a dead guy driving a car? Have you ever held a conversation with a dead person? Have you ever you know, played basketball with a dead guy? If your answer is yes to any of those questions, then you're probably dreaming or you're, or you're delusional. But we should not abuse God's grace. Just because Christ came to forgive us of our sins does not mean that we should just keep doing it because God will forgive us anyway. Um, I actually did ask Luis if I can pick on him a little bit. So, Luis, if you want to come on up. So, at Camp Kobiak many years ago, um, if you just want to lay down. Luis is going to take a little nap, not actually, but... Uh, a couple years ago, there was this demonstration, and it, it was something that just like kept sitting with me anytime time I think about it, and you can close your eyes too. So Luis is obviously a faithful young man in our church. He's you know, been through the bus ministry, been through the youth group, and now he's graduated his pace setter year, but Luis is now dead. So in his demonstration, he was showing the fact that dead people can't do anything, and when you're dead to sin, you shouldn't be able to do that anymore. So Luis, say any curse word you feel like. Whatever your favorite one is. He can't do it because Luis is dead. Luis is not able to say a curse word because he's dead. Well, I know sometime throughout your entire youth group journey, and especially probably your pace setter year, there's probably some guy out there that just really kept getting under your skin. Go, go ahead and go down there and you know, just go ahead and kill him, whatever. No one will say anything. No one will miss him. Again, Luis is not able to do that. He's not able to kill any of them, no matter how annoyed they probably make him. Because Luis is dead. He is dead to sin. He's not able to curse. He's not able to kill. He's not able to commit any sins. All right, good job. You're able to be alive again. You're welcome. All right. <laughs> there we go. See, told you it wasn't that hard. <laughs> I think he was more nervous than I was today. He, like, shook my hand. I was like, I, I think you need to pick someone else. I'm like, you're just laying down. But just like Luis was dead to those sins, or a dead person is no longer able to do anything, when you're dead to sin, you should not be able not, or you should not be committing those sins anymore. Because in, sorry, in verse 6 of chapter 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be, crucif or might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. It's very clear, our, our old man is always talking about our sinful nature, our natural desires, 
So our old man was destroyed on that cross. Our sinful nature was destroyed on that cross. And our carnality was destroyed on that cross. It was crucified with Christ. <clears throat> so we, we should no longer serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Because, in verse 4, at the end it says, Even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's why we call it a born-again Christian, because you're being born a second time. Our old self was crucified on that cross so we can live. So, we're, we talked about being carnally minded. What does it mean? We talked about being dead to sin. Now we're going to talk about being spiritually minded. Continuing in uh, chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So we're, we're supposed to purpose in ourselves to no longer sin. I'm going to take a drink of water real quick. So even though since the day you were born until the day that you die, you will constantly be still committing sins, sin after sin, and you'll always have to seek forgiveness. But as Christians, we should purpose in ourselves to not do that. Any of our our natural tendencies, any of our natural sin nature, we should be purposing ourselves not to yield into those temptations. Any, any temptation, any secret sin that you struggle with, you should be finding ways, finding verses, praying to God to not commit those sins anymore. Because rain, or sin should no longer reign in our mortal bodies. And then in verse 13, Neither yield yourself members, or neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So when I was reading through uh, Romans chapter chapter six, um, I I didn't stop at verse twelve. I wanted to read the whole chapter just to make sure I got a good understanding of what the whole chapter is talking about. But I was planning on stopping at verse 12 because, quite frankly, the first time I read it, I didn't understand verse 13, so I just kind of wanted to toss it to the side. But I read it again, and it didn't sit well with me because I didn't understand it. So I got my best friend out again. Uh, his name is Webster again. And I looked up a couple words. I looked up the word yield, members, and, in, and instruments. So yield means to allow or to concede. Members being your appetite or passions, and then instruments being a tool. So we're not supposed to allow or to concede your appetite as instruments of unrighteousness. And it reminded me of a story that I heard a couple years ago called Prisoner of His Appetite. So there, I don't know if it was a true story or not, so don't, any historians don't fact check me on it. I looked it up if it's a true story and my results were inconclusive, so take that as you will. So there is a duke, 14th century duke of modern-day Belgium named Reynold III. And Reynold III had a nickname. His nickname was Crassus. And that is actually Latin for a simple word that we actually all know, which simply just means fat. Reynold III was fat. And his young, he had a younger brother named Edward. There was no nickname given for him. But he had a younger brother named Edward, and he was very jealous of his older brother. He didn't think that he was fit to be the duke. He didn't think he was fit to be, you know, in the position of power that he was. And in a sense, he was right. Reynold III was not fit at all because he was crassus. He was fat. So eventually, Edward actually led a revolt against him, and he was successful. He took over Reynold III, and 
since it's his brother, he didn't want to just straight up kill him. So instead, he kind of he built a room for him and he threw him in there. And he told his brother that at any time you want to, you can walk out of the room. You can regain your title, all your property, and all your power. Once you walk out of the room, it's all back to being yours. And you may be thinking to yourselves, why would you lead a big old revolt, kill hundreds, maybe even thousands of lives, just to give it right back to him, just to give him the key right back to him? I mean, what's the catch? Is it like a giant escape the room? Uh, escape the room that's impossible, maybe? No. It was a simple room, had a normal door. The door was actually even unlocked. You didn't even have to find a key. Uh, the windows that were all over the room, uh, there were normal windows, no bars on them, no locks. All he had to do was just walk out and he can have it. But I don't know if you remember or not, but Reynold III was fat. He was actually so fat, in fact, that he was not able to walk through a normal door. He was not able to walk, jump through a normal window like we could. So all he had to do to escape is just go on a diet. All he had to do was just go on a diet you know, lose some weight, be able to squeeze through the door, then he can go back to eating because, I mean, he had a nickname, so he's probably fat for a long time. And Edward knew that all he had to do was diet, so instead of starving him, he actually brought him a variety of delicious foods every single day. Every single day, variety of different foods, and Reynold III kept growing and growing, fatter and fatter. And after a full decade, after 10 years, he was eventually released not because he went on a diet, he was released because Edward actually died in battle. But Reynold III actually ended up dying within a year due to poor health. He ate so much, he ended up dying because he kept yielding to his temptation. And just like Reynold III was enslaved to his own appetite, sin will enslave anyone who yields to it. Anyone who yields to sin, sin will keep giving you a variety of different ways to keep committing that sin and many other sins, so you keep getting deeper and deeper and fatter and fatter until eventually you'll die. But all you have to do is walk out. Back in verse 13, it says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God doesn't want you to yield to sin. He wants you to yield to him because you can now be alive from the dead instead of dying to sin. And he doesn't want you to be a tool of unrighteousness. He doesn't want you to be an instrument of unrighteousness. He wants you to be an instrument of righteousness. He wants you to serve him. So how can we be tools of righteousness? Well, it's pretty simple. Strive to be closer to him. You can have a, a two-way communication with God. Prayer is how you can talk to God. And God wrote us a book. God talks to us through this book. And through that two-way communication, you can be a good tool of righteousness. And while you're in that book, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom from God. Seek wisdom from the book. Apply what you read. Apply what he tells you. And I don't know if you guys are aware or not, but on Wednesday nights we do um, split sessions. And um, ever since we started the split sessions, every single guy except for me um, was given a topic because I am not an aged man, luckily. But in Ch Titus chapter 2, it says, That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. If you apply those aspects to your life, if you've been paying attention over the summer and been applying what you have learned, 
You can be a tool of righteousness. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. You guys can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be in uh, verse 19. Probably a familiar passage to a lot of people. This is one, this is one of the few things I actually remember from Sunday school. Um, it says, What know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So why should we be tools of righteousness? Why should we strive to be spiritually minded? It's because your body and your spirit belong to God. The way that you live your life, the way that you choose to act, you choose to present yourself. If you're a Christian, that represents God. You're supposed to glorify God with your body and glorify God in your spirit. So it matters how you portray yourself. It matters how you, you know, ink up yourself or more so not ink up yourself. It matters what you put into your body, both by substance, and by what, the, what music you listen to. I mean, our, what type of music did you listen to on your way here? What type of music did you listen to on your way to work? What do you do on Friday nights? What do you do on Saturday nights? Your body and your spirit belong to God. You're supposed to glorify God with your body and in your spirit. We'll be back in our passage in Romans chapter 8. So not only is your body and spirit God's, in the same passage as it describes what it means to be carnally minded, it also gives you some pretty good reasons to be spiritually minded. Back in verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So I looked up what the word life meant um, in that particular passage, and I went to my best friend again, and he gave me 26 different definitions. And I read the first 21. Because in Merriam-Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it actually has the definition, and then it'll give you a scripture reference when that definition is used. So all the way down the 21st, not the first or second, but the 21st, it, it, all it said was supreme felicity, and then in parentheses, Romans 8, 6, is life and peace. And me being me and not paying attention in English class, I had no idea what felicity meant. So I looked up felicity in the same dictionary, and it says... Happiness, or rather great happiness, blessedness, blissfulness, appropriately, the joys of heaven. So, when you're spiritually minded, you get supreme felicity. And I don't know if you remember that I said earlier or not, but a main goal of the world is to be happy. God does not want you to live on this earth and not be happy. He doesn't want you to have an unhappy time here, so heaven will be so much greater when you're there. No matter how happy you are here, you're still going to be far happier in heaven. But God wants you to be happy here. He wants you to be happy on earth. Amen. So when you're spiritually minded, you'll get life and peace. And the word peace in this context means a secure and loving relationship with God. You have that two-way communication. You're spiritually minded. You have a secure and loving relationship with God because you get life and peace. And then in verse 9, but if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that, the Spirit of God dwell in you. When the Spirit of God dwells in you, when the Holy Ghost dwells in you, the fruit of the Spirit should shine through you. In Galatians 
be the last place I'll have you guys turn for tonight. Probably a familiar passage to a lot of you guys. But in Galatians 5.22, we'll read a couple of verses here. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. When you're living in the Spirit, when you're spiritually minded, the fruit of the Spirit should shine through you. The way that you live your life, it all adds up, and however you live your life, people are able to tell by your works. People are able to tell by the fruits that you provide. And you can either live fleshly and not provide good fruits whatsoever. You can be angry, not gentle. You have no faith in anything. You're very prideful, greedy. Or you can have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Because you have crucified the flesh and the or crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So why should you why should you walk in the spirit? Because you get life and peace. You are God's. And and the fruit of the spirit dwells in or the spirit of God dwells in you. Sorry. So I I just have a couple of questions that I labeled questions to provoke thought, and then I'll turn it over to Pastor Wally. Where are, your, where are your minds at tonight? Are you spiritually minded? Or are you carnally minded? Do you focus on the things of the world or the things of God? Are you currently enmity with God? Number two, are you living like you are dead to sin? Are you letting sin still have reign over you? Are you still yielding to sin? Are you currently abusing God's grace? Just because he will forgive you of your sins doesn't mean that you should keep committing those sins? Are you living like your sin nature was destroyed at that cross? And then number three, what are you yielding to tonight? Don't be like Raymond III. Do not be a prisoner to your own flesh. Do not be a prisoner to your own sinful nature. Yield to God. Be an instrument of righteousness. Men, God wants you to be spiritually minded. That's wrong.